good to see you all this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege to be able to pick up our psalm series in Psalm 53 today, so you can begin to turn there now. I'm excited to be back in the psalms. Genesis has been a blessing, but it's fun to have the summer in the psalms and hear these incredible psalms. We have a short one today, only six verses, but it is packed with so much. And it is a big call to reality. It's a reality check in many ways. So pray that we would receive it well. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 6. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living and perfect God. To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against him. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious God and King, we are reminded of your word, Father, when it teaches us That fearing you is the beginning of knowledge. For only fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Lord, we do confess that so often in our lives we have lived like fools. Despising your word and fearing men more than we fear you, Father. Lord, forgive us. Help us to fear you this morning with a godly fear. Help us to receive your instruction with humility and with joy, even your word of rebuke, because we know that it leads to the fool's only hope, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure all of you know that in the English language, to exclaim things or basically to emphasize things, we use things like exclamation points, right? To make thoughts or feelings really stand out. Sadly, in our day, in the modern day, the English language has devolved quite a bit, hasn't it? Now when we want to emphasize things, when we want to make some things stand out, what do we do? Well, it probably depends on our age. If you're like me or your older person in this room, maybe you still use exclamation points. Or maybe you use all caps, but you learn pretty quickly that your kids hate that, don't they? I think you're yelling at them or something like that. We have old-fashioned ways of exclaiming things. But I'll bet if you're a young person here, especially teens and early 20s, that 
the way you emphasize things is with emojis or memes, right? Or gifs or gifs. You can correct me later. I don't know which way to say that, but that's the way our world is, isn't it? Because nothing, unfortunately, says I'm serious in our world like a frowny-faced cat, unfortunately. It's a sad day for language, that's for sure. Well, I am so thankful that emojis didn't exist when the Bible was written. And you know what else didn't exist? All caps and exclamation points. That's not the way the Bible emphasizes various things. So how does God show that something is important? How does he make things stand out in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew language? Well, it's actually pretty simple. He uses repetition. Repetition to emphasize certain thoughts or sayings or people or places. A really good example of this is in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember that throne room scene, don't you? Where the seraphim are gathered around the throne of God. They're worshiping God, giving him praise as his glory fills the temple. And you remember what they say. They don't just say, holy is the Lord. That would be absolutely true. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that repetition tells us that God is preeminently holy. He's gloriously perfect and sinless and set apart from all of his creation as king. And there's nothing, nothing in creation that even approaches God's holiness. That's what that emphasis shows us. Now, here in Psalm 53, we have repetition again, but not in the same way that we have in the Isaiah 6 passage. It's not words that are repeated over and over again. Astoundingly, it's the entire psalm. I'll bet some of you even realize when we read this psalm, you're like, these words sound familiar. And they should, because they are repeated almost word for word in two other places in Scripture. The first place is Psalm 14, which is astonishing because it's almost the exact same psalm. Yahweh in Psalm 14 is changed to Elohim in this psalm, which is a pretty common pattern in this book of the Psalter. And verse 5 is a little different, focusing more on judgment rather than comforting God's people, although that is a comfort as well, as we'll find out. But it's essentially the same exact psalm. Now, I bet most of us probably thought ahead in the New Testament as Paul picks up these words. In Romans 3, as he's walking through the gospel, he uses these words to put the depravity of man on display so he can show how glorious Jesus is. I hope this already is bringing a question to mind. Why would God do this? Why would he repeat a psalm word for word pretty much when he already has one? Is one time not enough? If this is emphasis, then what is he emphasizing? What does he want to make sure that we don't forget and that we truly understand? Well, I think what God is emphasizing here in the psalm, what he's really revealing for us is the foolishness of sin. He's revealing the depravity of this world so that sinners like you and I can run to Christ for salvation before we receive justice. In other words, what he's doing here is he's putting the depravity of mankind on display. And as we look at this psalm, we think, wow, the world is terrible. They're a mess out there. But the longer we look at this psalm, the more we realize we're actually looking into a mirror. And this is who we would be apart from the grace of God. 
Now, in order for us to see this picture clearly and be able to respond appropriately, I have three points for us today. The first is the life of the fool. And I want to take you to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 25, to go back to that passage to see the life of the fool there. And then we'll talk about the picture of the fool we get in this passage, in the first five verses. And then last, we need to get to those last few verses, verses 5 and 6, the hope of the fool. So, the life of the fool, the picture of the fool, and then the hope of the fool. So first, the life of the fool, which is in 1 Samuel 25. But don't turn there quite yet. Because you're probably wondering, well, wait a minute, why are we going to 1 Samuel 25? I mean, I'm sure many of you are looking even now. I see your heads going down. You look at the superscript for that information, don't you? Look at the superscript in Psalm 53. There's nothing there about the historical context, is there? There's details about who wrote the psalm and the tune itself, but that's pretty much it. So how do we know that this psalm is about 1 Samuel 25? Well, it's very simple, actually, because Psalm 53 is between Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. I know, groundbreaking stuff, right? Hang with me. I promise it'll make sense. Look at Psalm 52. Look at the superscript here in Psalm 52. It says, to the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. I'm sure you don't remember, that's last summer we talked about that psalm. But those events happen in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now look at Psalm 54, the superscript as well. This one says, to the choir master as well, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, still written by David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Well, if you know 1 Samuel, that event happens in 1 Samuel chapter 26. So what happens between 1 Samuel 22 and 1 Samuel 26? Well, David has an encounter with a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. And that's in 1 Samuel 25. Now, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. They're not always in chronological order like that. And you're right if you're thinking that way. But often the Psalms are clustered together thematically and even chronologically to show a portion of their life with a really important theme. And that's exactly what we have going on. You know when you read this, the theme of this psalm is the fool. Guess what the Hebrew word for fool is? It's navel. It's navel, which is further confirmation that this is about this man. In fact, when you read in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In Hebrew, it literally says, Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. So these three psalms are really a portion of David's life from 1 Samuel 22 to 1 Samuel 26. And he wants us to read this psalm with Nabal in mind. And when we see 1 Samuel 25, you'll really see it. So turn there right now. Turn to 1 Samuel 25. Keep your finger here in the psalms because we will come back. But 1 Samuel 25. Now just to set the context here, David is on the run from Saul. He's on the run and something terrible just happened. Samuel died. The one who anointed him king, one of his biggest supporters, one of the most respected men in Israel, and now he is gone. David is truly on his own. He's on the run and he encounters this man named Nabal in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25. Verse 2. Let's hear what this man says. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. 
He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, which is just a ridiculous amount of livestock compared to anyone around him. He is very rich. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, fool. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now here's where we begin to see the foolishness of Nabal coming out. His wife, Abigail, it says here, is a discerning person. She's wise, she's godly, and she's beautiful. I don't just think that means that she's beautiful in appearance. I think she is. She is beautiful in character. She is a godly woman, which we see in this passage. So certainly she's a good influence on Nabal, but here's the height of his foolishness. He would not listen to his wife. He would not learn from her wisdom. He would not learn from her example or the example of his extended family. We find out here he's a Calebite. He's a descendant of Caleb. You remember Caleb, don't you? In the book of Numbers, he was one of the only two spies along with Joshua at the edge of the promised land who said, look, I know the enemies are big. I know they're scary, but God just took out the Egyptians. I know he can take them out too. Let's go get the promised land. We're right here. And he was basically almost stoned for saying that. And then God's people took a detour for 40 years out in the desert where that whole generation died off, except for Caleb and Joshua, who led the way into the promised land. So Nabal comes from a courageous family, even a kingly family, because that's the line of Judah, the line of the Messiah. His wife was a blessing to him. He had so many blessings because he was rich. God had blessed him tremendously. This man had everything he needed to be a godly, generous, good man. But he was a fool. He was harsh and badly behaved. He squandered all that he had. And we see that in this passage. Now, verses 4 through 9 in this passage, David's men approached Nabal because they had been helping him. They had been guarding his flocks by day and by night, and they approached him because they kind of want to get paid for their work. They've been out here doing this, and they want support. They want provisions. And listen to what Nabal says. Verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Nabal basically says, get out of here. I don't care who David is. I don't care if you think he's going to be the next king. I don't care if your men have been protecting me and helping me out. I don't owe you anything. Even though he has plenty to spare. And with these foolish words, Nabal provokes David. When David hears this, David tells his men, strap on your sword, let's go get Nabal. Let's go take him out. But here's the thing. When David arrives, he doesn't see Nabal first. He meets Abigail. And Abigail comes to save the day. She brings food and supplies for David's men. And listen to her words in verse 24. Verse 24, chapter 25. She, that's Abigail, fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Do you see what she's doing? She is repenting. 
for her husband. She's willing to take David's wrath for her husband's sin. It's probably not the first time she's done this because her husband is a fool. Keep reading. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly, foolishness is with him. Now, I don't want you to think too harshly of Abigail and think, wow, she talks so poorly of her husband. She's calling him a fool. No, remember, this is a wise and discerning woman. She knows her husband. And apparently so does everybody else. Because in verse 17 that I skipped, one of the servants of Nabal calls him a worthless man as well. And he goes to Abigail for help after what Nabal said to David. He says, he's not going to help us out. I need to go to the wife. I need to go to Abigail if I'm going to get any kind of help. Everybody knows that Nabal is a fool. Except Nabal. Which is so often the case with fools. They're blinded by their own foolishness. And because Abigail repents of her husband's sin, David doesn't give Nabal what he deserves. And look, there's no question. He deserves justice. What he did was a terrible thing. But David wasn't necessarily the one to give it to him. Look at verse 33. David says this, Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, that's Abigail, who have kept me this day from blood guilt. And from working salvation with my own hand. See, David's acknowledging, I almost became the fool here. I almost tried to defend my name with anger in my heart. Instead of letting the Lord defend me. I almost took wrath upon myself to to lay it out. But the Lord is the one that brings the wrath. And God would do that very quickly. Look at verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Yeah, because he didn't have anything to spare, did he? And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Evidence of his foolishness is everywhere. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died Within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. God gave Nabal justice. This story is almost the parable of a fool. We learn from this picture that God does defend his own, the righteous, and he does bring justice to the fool on behalf of his people. And that my friends, is the context, the theme of the entire psalm that we're studying in Psalm 53. You can turn back there real quickly. Psalm 53. But here's the thing. David takes this psalm and he expands on the picture of the fool. He says, look, there aren't just nables out there. Not just fools around us. There are nables in here, in the church, and in here, in all of us. And God reveals that as well. So let's look at the picture of the fool in Psalm 53. And just so you know, the picture here that we get is actually laid out for us. It's painted for us in seven characteristics. 
Don't worry, they'll go fast, all right? Seven characteristics, three from David of the fool and then four from God. So the first characteristics in this picture of a fool is fools are atheists at heart. Fools are atheists at heart. Look at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now that most of us, when we read this, we probably think, well, that's just the confession of an atheist, a confessing atheist, a creedal atheist. You know, like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Peter Singer or the guys that you would see on social media who are always debating Christians, always writing new books, are fighting constantly to get any God talk out of schools and, and out of the public square. It seems like the goal of these men and women are basically to convince everybody that there is no God, as this says. And certainly that does include this type of person. But see, here's the thing. The only problem with thinking this way is that those kinds of people didn't really exist in David's day. Almost everyone around David in that world believed in some kind of deity or a plethora of deities, a bunch of different gods. Almost no one would shout from the rooftops, there is no God. But plenty of people would say in their hearts, there is no God. And I'm sure there are many people even in this room that might say in their hearts, there is no God. What David is talking about here is the practical atheists. The atheists at heart, though the atheists in practice. He's talking about the person that may acknowledge there's a creator. They might acknowledge God exists. They may even acknowledge that Christianity is true. That there is one God and he's the triune God and that Jesus is Lord. But they're just empty words. They're just an empty confession. Because their heart is corrupt. As it says in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. This fool lacks moral integrity. They have no moral compass. They are the first to break God's law, the first to lie, steal, and cheat without hesitation. And why do they do that? Because they have dethroned God in their hearts. They think to themselves, you know, if God does exist, he won't judge me. He won't call me to account for the things I say. He doesn't really see the things I do in secret. He doesn't hear the things I say when other people aren't really around. So you know what? I will decide good and evil for myself. Thank you very much. If God's not going to do it, then I will. I will be the one to make other people account for their sins, and I'm going to ignore my own because I'm the one that determines good and evil. Fools are atheists at heart. But you know what? This inward corruption leads to actions. As it says in the middle of verse 1, fools do abominable things. Look at verse 1 again. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. This is incredibly strong language because David could have said they just sin. They commit iniquity, but he says abominable iniquity, high-handed sin. This is shaking their fists in God's face. It's not the atheist who said, oh, there's no God. No, it's shaking their fists in God's face. Active rebellion against here. And look, this is how we identify the fool. This is how we figure out who the practical atheists are because we can't see inside the heart. We can't even see inside of our own hearts at times because we can be so deceived. We may have this confession that there is no God and it shows up in our lives by what we do. 
in our actions. The fool hates God's law. They do abominable things without a second thought. The fool refuses to worship God and bows down to idols. They take the Lord's name in vain. They do not take God seriously. Fools use the Lord's day for themselves. Fools dismiss and dishonor their parents and really any authority for that matter. Fools are consumed with hatred and murderous thoughts about people made in God's image. Fools give themselves to lust, break their vows, walk away from their spouses unlawfully. Fools steal from their employer. They gossip, they lie, and fools are never content. Never content with what God has provided for them. The bottom line, fools live lawlessly. And they do so with no remorse, no regret, because they believe in their heart there is no God. There is no consequence, so I can live however I want. You know what? Since I'm not harming anyone, God doesn't mind what I do. And you know what? He probably doesn't mind even if I don't do anything good either. This brings us to our next characteristic, the third characteristic. The fool can be identified not just by what they do, but also by what they fail to do. Fools are unable to do good. Look at verse 1 again, the very, well, kind of the end of verse 1. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. I wonder how you hear that. I wonder if you hear that and think, this has to be an exaggeration. Come on, really? Nothing good? You're telling me there's not non-Christians out there doing anything good? What about the Muslim doctor trying to cure cancer or cure other diseases? That's not a good thing? What about the soldier, the firefighter, the police officer laying down their lives? They're not a believer, but they're sacrificing themselves as a believer should. Or kids, maybe you're thinking, what about grandma and grandpa? They don't seem to know the Lord. They never really go to church, but they're really nice to me. They're generous, they're fun. You're telling me they're not good people? What about my aunt or my uncle who's caught up in homosexuality, caught up in the gender trend confusion of our culture? You're telling me they can't do anything good? This is where we have to be very careful and think about what the Bible teaches here. The Bible does teach us that any action not done in submission to God and for his glory is not truly good at the end of the day. It's sin. Now, can God bring good things out of even sinful, horrible actions? Of course he can. Joseph taught us this. You meant it for evil, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good. God can bring goodness out of all kinds of those things. And can people do good acts but for the wrong reason and it still condemn them? Absolutely. Because you see, brothers and sisters, God doesn't just care about the law. Now, please hear me. God does care about the law. God does care about what we do. But he also cares about the way we do it. He also cares about the motive and the heart behind the actions themselves. It's not enough just to obey Jesus is really clear on this with the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus walks through the Ten Commandments, and he doesn't just say, look, don't murder. He says, no, don't want to murder. Right? Don't want to murder. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
He doesn't just say don't commit adultery. He says don't want to commit adultery. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The problem isn't just what we do, it's also what we believe, what we feel, our motives behind what we do. Our depravity runs so much deeper than we often think. In fact, Jesus even said in John 15, 1, he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There has to be a relationship, a union with Jesus to bear the fruits of righteousness. And Jesus adds, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we cannot bear the fruit of righteousness and holiness because we are fallen, foolish people. The fruit, the goodness that God is glorified in is when we become a new creation. God makes us new and we respond in faith. And it's only then that we are able to do truly good things. So what about those good works for non-Christians that may accomplish some good things but are done in a poor way? Those are fake. Those are selfish. Those are rebellious works that they will be even condemned for. And you know this, someone could donate to the poor, someone could serve the weak, but they're only doing it for the recognition. They're only doing it to get their name on a plaque or to look good in front of their friends or family or to get votes. That's the way our world works. And look, kids, you know this as well, don't you? You might be told, clean the house, take out the trash. And sometimes you know you're probably only doing it to look better than your brother or sister. They've had a rough day, but look at you, the good one, right? Or maybe you do take out the trash, but you do it in protest. You do it slamming things and grunting and groaning, maybe even yelling on the way out the door. That's not a good thing. You might be obeying, but your heart is wicked. You're being a fool. Or maybe most of us are a lot more like Nabal than we think. Maybe we won't do good until it benefits us. We won't do anything good if it costs us. That's what Nabal did. This is the picture of the fool according to David. Now would God agree with this? Would he think this is an exaggeration? Well, let's look. Verse two, Psalm 53. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Notice, God's not looking for sinlessness. He's not looking for perfection. That ship has sailed. This is fallen humanity he's looking at. He's looking for wisdom. He's looking deep down in the heart of every man, woman, and child to see if they recognize their folly. If they recognize the state of their heart enough to look to God for salvation. Is David really right? Have they all become fools? Look what God says. And please notice the emphasis here, the repetition here in verse 3. They have all fallen away. Who? Together they have become corrupt. Everyone, there is none who does good. Three times in a row and really four times if we go back to what David said. And then it's almost as if God anticipates us. Well, what about so-and-so? What about my saintly grandmother? And then he says, nope. Not even one. 
You see what the Lord's doing. He took David's picture of Nabal and the wickedness of those out there. And he says to David and to us, have you looked in a mirror lately? This is not just a problem in the world. It's not a problem just out there. It's a problem in here. No one is immune to this corruption. No one is immune to this foolishness. And that's the fourth characteristic of a fool. Everyone is a fool in Adam. We are all totally depraved. That is our nature in this fallen world. And look, that doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be. There are things we can do to get worse. And by God's grace, we don't go as far as we have. But that does mean that we are as bad off as we can be. That total affects everyone. And it affects every part of us. There's not anything within us that is not affected by sin. We are sinners, both body and soul, motive and action. We are completely sinful. And we have no resources, nothing to fix our sinfulness, our foolish and sinful condition. It's just like in the days of Noah. You remember God looked down in Genesis chapter 6. He looks at humanity and what does he see? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's who we are in this fallen world. Then God continues with the fifth characteristic in verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge? This is incredible to me because God goes right to the heart. Yeah, they do horrible things. Yes, they're all depraved, but what's its source? It's that corrupt heart that pushes away God's knowledge. Fools are ignorant of God's truth. They hate God's truth. Look, that doesn't mean they're dumb or they're not intelligent. Actually, in our world standard, you could have 100 degrees. You could be the smartest man alive in so many ways, and you can still be a fool because you can still suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The truth that is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made, Romans 1.20 says. And so we are without excuse. There are no true atheists. Just those that suppress the truth. And Proverbs says these are fools. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom. Fools despise instruction. And you know, that's the theme of the rest of the book of Proverbs, isn't it? Proverbs could be Nabal's book. (laughs) Fools ignore the instructions of others. Fools ignore God's word because fools are ignorant of the truth. Sixth, fools hate God's people. Look at verse four again. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread kind of a disgusting picture, isn't it? Eat God's people? What does God mean there? What is he picturing? Well, let me put it like this. I'll bet there is no one in this room who thinks twice about eating a sandwich. We don't think about the moral consequences of eating bread, do we? We don't think about the pain and the things that will happen, the punishment that we may have because we eat a sandwich. No, of course not. That's ridiculous, right? God is saying here, fools, care just as much for God's people as we do that sandwich. They treat us like objects. Objects who are either in their way and must be destroyed or objects who can be used for their end. 
their glory. They don't think twice about the pain and the loss they inflict on God's people. And this can happen in the church, brothers and sisters. It can happen among us. We can show our own foolishness as we don't hesitate to break God's law and do the things that God hates. We rage against God. Fools rage against God and his people. Fools set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, as it says in Psalm 2. And when they set themselves against Jesus, they set themselves against us, his people. That's why Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it's hated you. There's nothing more frustrating or aggravating to a fool than someone who would come and call them a fool. Who would come and speak the truth that they are in sin and need to repent and live according to God's law. They hate that. And seventh, fools will not repent. Fools will not repent. This is the thing that distinguishes God's fools, those that have come out of foolishness for those that stay fools. Verse four, still talking about the fools here. The fools do not call upon God. This may be the most shocking part of this passage and the most shocking part of the foolishness of the world in my own life. The stubbornness of the fool to suppress God's truth, to continue to push God's word out of the way, to hate God's people and to dethrone God in their hearts over and over and over again. But still deep down they know this practical atheism will fall apart one day. It's not the way the world works. They are without excuse. They know that, Romans 1 says. But still they continue in their foolishness. Even though judgment is increasing, getting ever closer, they continue and they do not repent. They're even terrified by this judgment. Look at verse 5. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. Judgment is coming. But they just ignore it. They see the evidence of death all around them, but they just trivialize it. They mock death. They mock God's judgment and act like it's no big deal. I preached at a funeral a while ago with a lot of non-Christians, and those are always really interesting to me. And I remember as I began and talked about this, this person's life, and then I got to the gospel, as soon as I started to talk about sin and death, people stopped making eye contact with me. And when I got to hell and judgment and called to repentance, I saw people shaking their heads at me. I just remember thinking, they think I'm a fool. But I'm standing here in front of a dead man declaring that this world is broken and that judgment is coming. Who's the fool here? We live this way so often. We don't have to be at a funeral to be assaulted with death. It is all around us. The older you get, the more you feel it. And only fools will not repent. This is the picture of a fool. They're practical atheists. They do abominable things. They fail to do anything good. They are all corrupt, ignorant of God's truth. They hate God's people, and they won't repent. Pretty depressing view of the world, isn't it? But you know what? Here's what I love about the Bible. It doesn't pull any punches. It shows us how depraved we actually are in a way that's even painful for us to look at so that we can get to the solution, so that we can see what we're saved from. And that's the hope of the fool in verses 5 and 6. There's actually two hopes here. The first hope 
is that God will bring justice to the fools who won't repent. Look at verse 5 again, the end of verse 5 here. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Remember, these are the fools that won't repent. And this is talking about their ultimate defeat. And notice, this is not just a defeat. This is a humiliating defeat. It's God saying, look, if you continue in your foolishness, if you continue in your rebellion, you will meet me as your judge. And I am holy. And I do see. And I do hear everything. And on that day, I'm not going to just judge you and defeat you. I will scatter your bones. The picture of that is, look, you have no headstone. There is no funeral, no remembrance of you at all. You are utterly destroyed. That's what God does to wickedness and to the wicked fools. Be like they never even existed. Now, on the other hand, this is great comfort for the people of God. When we suffer at the hands of foolish people, fools like Nabal and like David suffered at the hands of Nabal, we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to bring judgment and justice for ourselves. We don't have to play the fool to get back at the fool. We can entrust it all to God. Entrust it to the one who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We can, like David, turn from our foolishness. Repent because we know there is a God. And this God is just. That's the hope of God's people. But what about the fools within? That's the solution for the fools out there. What about the fool within my own heart? That's the second hope. The second hope is the Messiah would come and save even his foolish people. Look at verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, out of God's people, when God restores the fortunes of his people, when God sets everything right. That beautiful description in Isaiah that Jason read this morning, when God sets everything right, he reverses the sin and the damage done in this world and sets it all right so that Jacob can rejoice. Let Israel be glad. All God's people rejoice in the salvation, not just from the fools out there, but from the fools in here. And don't forget, this is the prayer of a fool. Just a couple psalms ago, David is repenting of sins with Bathsheba, killing her husband Uriah, of betraying his whole nations. He committed worse sin than Nabal and than most of us. And he's modeling here how a fool repents, how a fool humbles himself and calls upon the name of the Lord. And notice he doesn't look inward. He knows all he'll see if he looks inwards is foolishness. He looks for righteousness outside of himself. He looks for the Messiah promised in the word. He looks for the one who would come to live perfectly in his place and in our place. The one who would come and die in the place of the fool, bear the wrath that we deserve and raise from the dead to save us from death and sin and judgment and all foolishness. The one that would change our hearts from a foolish heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that we can actually obey God's law. That's David's hope, and it's our hope. It's no wonder Paul picks up these words again in Romans, right? Describing the gospel in Romans 3, you don't have to turn there. Let me read these words. I hope they sound familiar by now. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not 
even one. Paul takes Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and says, this is the state of man apart from Christ. But then these glorious words in Romans 3, 21, but now. The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Not our own works that we earn that righteousness. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They pointed to the one that would obey. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all enables and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-bearer by his blood to be received by faith. What glorious words. What glorious hope we have. Because apart from Christ, like I said, we're all fools. We're all navel. We all say in our heart, there is no God. And every time we sin, we say that again. But God can deliver us from all the fools out there. And he has delivered us in Christ from the fool within ourselves. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Humble yourself before God. Repent of your sin and your foolishness. See this picture of a fool as who you would be apart from the grace of God. And rejoice. This is not who we are anymore. Because our Messiah has come out of Zion. He's restored the fortunes of his people. And he's rescued fools like us that look to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for even this rebuke, this mirror that we put to our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would now respond in faith, clinging to Christ, our only hope, and use this law as our guide so that we would repent of foolishness quickly and that we would often rejoice in the perfection of our Savior, which is now ours by faith. Lord, you are so good to us. You give us so much more than we deserve. Help us, Lord, to respond in gratitude and faith. And may you use fools like us to build your kingdom to the end of the age. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.